Good morning. In today's headlines, Hollywood riders could be returning to work tomorrow. We look at the WGA's tentative agreement with major studios after a nearly five-month strike. Fears of a government shutdown growing. Who's affected and how should you get prepared? We'll hear more from Entity Business host Don Ma. The tropical storm Ophelia caused power outages to thousands along the northeastern U.S. coast. More illegal immigrants are being put on buses and sent to cities like New York and Chicago, but this time it's a Democrat mayor, not a Republican governor behind the trips. Excitement as one of NASA's space capsules returns from a seven-year journey. The capsule holds the largest ever collected sample of soil from an asteroid, but what will it reveal? Are governments worldwide working against farmers and ranchers who supply food to the world? We take a look at a new epic original documentary that explores that question. At a feast of poise and grace, the NTD International Chinese Beauty Pageant kicked off in New York. Our reporters spoke to some candidates to find the deeper meanings behind the event. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning, everyone, and I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Monday, September 25th. And that epic original, No Farmers, No Food, Roman did a really great job with that, Roman Balmakov. And there's a little bit of comic relief at the start, so I won't spoil it for you. Yeah, don't. I haven't watched it yet, unfortunately, but I, I definitely will. I did get the chance, to, though, to try some of the cricket leftovers. Ah, right. Well, we're glad you're here. We're going to start right off. That's right. We're starting off with some breaking news this morning from overnight. The Hollywood writers' strike could soon be over. Union leaders reached a tentative agreement last night after days of negotiating and a nearly five-month strike. No deal is in the works for striking actors yet. The Writers Guild of America, or WGA, described the deal as exceptional in its announcement yesterday. It suspended picketing and encouraged its members to join picket lines for the actors' strike instead this week. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the possible end to the WGA strike. The Writers Guild of America, or WGA, said it reached a preliminary labor agreement with major studios on Sunday. The deal could end one of two strikes that have thrown a wrench in Hollywood production and cost California's economy billions of dollars. The terms of the three-year contract are not yet known and still need to be approved by WGA leadership and members before it can take effect. The WGA described the agreement as meaningful gains and protections for writers. The union's negotiating committee said it would only share details after receiving final contract language. Negotiators will then vote on whether to recommend the deal to leadership, who will decide if it's presented to members for a vote. A tentative deal to end the last writer's strike in 2008 was approved by more than 90% of members. WGA concerns include declining revenue streams from traditional television, streaming service issues, and fewer job opportunities. Writers are also worried about the use of AI and want protections to ensure job security. The current 146-day walkout came close to beating the longest strike in WGA history of a 1988 strike that lasted 154 days. The Screen Actors Union remains on strike. The Guild represents around 160,000 film and television actors, stunt performers, voiceover artists and other media professionals. Members walked off the job in July, making it the first time in 63 years that Hollywood has faced a strike by both unions at the same time. The WGA says union members could be authorized to return to work Tuesday before the agreement is officially ratified. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News.
President Biden is joining the United Auto Workers picket line in Michigan tomorrow. The president said on X that it was to stand in solidarity with UAW members as they fight for a fair share of the value they helped to create. Strikes at three Midwest plants of GM, Ford and Stellantis are one week in. UAW President Sean Fain says strikes will soon expand to close to 40 locations in 20 states. He encouraged supporters to join picket lines in an online speech on Friday. Fain invited, in his words, our friends and family all the way to the President of the United States. Biden's visit comes a day before his chief rival in the 2024 presidential election, former President Trump, is set to speak to auto workers in Michigan. The UAW has not yet endorsed Biden for re-election. President Biden has announced the creation of the first federal office on gun violence prevention. He says it'll save lives as Congress is stalled on passing tighter gun laws. Vice President Kamala Harris will oversee the new office. Its goal is to find new actions on gun control the White House can take without Congress, including by identifying potential executive actions and working with local governments to pass laws on the state level. Biden says the office will work just like FEMA and will coordinate support for survivors, families and communities affected by gun-related violence. But Republicans are sounding the alarm on the new office and over 20 Republican senators have introduced new legislation they say would prevent Biden from declaring a public health emergency to impose gun control. And for more on this, we want to bring in retired U.S. Navy officer and New Jersey Police Detective Lieutenant Stephen Rogers. Good morning. It's good to have you, Lieutenant, this morning. So on the White House Office of Gun Violence Prevention, can you start by just telling us what you know or what you expect so far about how this office intends to increase gun safety? Well, look, it's another waste of time, another waste of taxpayer dollars. Uh, they have stated, stated it as part of their mission is to increase uh, gun safety programs throughout the country. Well, they ought to do some research. They'll find out that the NRA, for example, has one of the most effective gun safety programs that are now being utilized in a lot of uh, schools, elementary schools and high schools, as well as civic organizations across America. Their intent is a waste of time. Hmm. Well, and then gun shootings and gun safety is still a big issue in this country, though. And then what do you think they should do or what ideally do you think would want to see from this office for it to maybe make an impact? Well, I'd like them to fund police departments to give uh, law enforcement agencies from the federal to local level the tools they need to fight gun violence. Look, uh, President Biden says that this is a public safety, I'm sorry, public health issue. No, it's a criminal justice issue. So what I'd like to see this commission do is to disband and uh, utilize resources of our government uh, into areas that will be very, very effective, which is crime prevention against gun violence. If you can go in a bit more detail about this, um, I, I spoke to an attorney earlier, Edwin Walker. He was saying that there is actually plenty of gun laws out there in place. There's just not enough being done that's, so that they're being enforced properly on a local level. So what's your stance on this? And you know, how do you think maybe, or what do you think can change this? Well, he's right. Uh, I'll give an example. Washington, D.C. and other uh, cities around the country have the toughest gun laws, and there's still a lot of uh, gun violence. Uh, the way you're going to solve the problem is, on a local level, is make sure your district attorneys and your prosecutors and attorney generals send these people committing violence by guns to prison and put them in there. Bail reform has 
release them on the streets. Uh, people who have committed great, great uh, atrocities with guns are being released. So that's what you've got to do. You've got to get tough on crime, and you'll see a reduction in uh, violence via guns. Right. And um, another point to this is that gun safety advocates have actually been pushing for an office like this for quite a while. Now, why do you think um, the administration or President Biden just created this office now? Well, he created it now because, uh, to begin with, there are a lot of state elections coming up at this November. You've got uh, congressional elections and obviously a presidential election uh, coming up very soon. It's always about politics when it comes to the Biden administration and, may I add, the Democrats. This is a, they're trying to create a political situation where they're going to uh, uh, just appease that those advocates and their base. This is a real serious problem. It should be bipartisan. And the way you get it effectively done is you enhance the ability of law enforcement to do their job. Hmm. So you say they did it because the elections are coming. How do you think it will affect him in the election? Well, I'll tell you, it'll certainly galvanize the base. And I'm talking about the Republican Party base, the Second Amendment advocates. It'll galvanize, galvanize them to finally get out in mass and to make sure that the Second Amendment is protected. Hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much, Lieutenant Stephen Rogers, for your time this morning and your insights. I appreciate it. Well, always a pleasure. Thank you. From public safety to the House budget battle, it's finally shifting to the floor just days before the new fiscal year starts on October 1st. House members convened tomorrow to consider four fiscal year 2024 appropriations packages. Another procedural vote is scheduled on allowing budget bills to be debated individually. On tap will be the proposed $1.5 trillion farm bill and the $886 billion National Defense Authorization Act for the third time. The Homeland Security budget and State Department spending plan are also on the agenda. House members must still approve 11 out of 12 bills in the annual federal budget, along with resolving any differences with the Senate's budget bills. If a budget is not in place by October 1st, it will either mean a partial government shutdown for the 11th time since 1980 or present funding levels being sustained through a continuing resolution. And a space capsule carrying NASA's first asteroid samples touched down in the Utah de desert yesterday, completing a seven-year journey. The capsule took pieces of rubble from a carbon-rich asteroid that scientists believe could be the building blocks of our solar system. Scientists say the samples will give them a better understanding of how Earth and life were formed. Entity's cost MS gives us a summary of the mission and its discovery. The OSIRIS-REx spacecraft released a capsule around 60,000 miles above Earth. It landed several hours later on a remote military test range in Utah. Recovery team members approached the capsule, took gas samples and checked the surrounding area before the capsule was taken away by helicopter. Scientists estimate the capsule holds at least a cup of rubble from the carbon-rich asteroid known as Bennu. We just appreciate everyone coming along with us to celebrate NASA's first ever asteroid sample return. It has been incredible. The collected samples will be flown to a new lab at NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston later on Monday where scientists will examine the samples to get a better understanding of the material gathered. The $1 billion mission on the capsule's mothership, OSIRIS-REx, launched in 2016. It reached Benno two years later and used a long-stick vacuum to grab rubble from the asteroid in 2020. The spacecraft had logged around 4 billion miles by its return. 
The mission marked only the third but largest asteroid sample ever returned to Earth for analysis. Following two similar missions by Japan's space agency, which ended in 2010 and 2020, yielding far smaller results. OSIRIS-REx is already on course to target another asteroid. But that encounter won't occur until 2029. A public show-and-tell is planned for next month, where NASA will reveal further details about the findings. Cost MNS, NTD News. Really, a $1 billion investment. That's huge. Hopefully they're able to make some good findings from that. Yeah, it sounds like a big milestone, though, based on that. And I, I read that they're hoping to find out how the solar system was formed. Wow, it's interesting how it can possibly play into our lives here on Earth. Yeah. Yeah, going to break now. Will Trump be able to win over the unions during his visit to Detroit this week? And how would RFK Jr.'s potential decision to run as a third-party candidate impact Biden's chances? We hear some analysis. El Paso, Texas says it's at a breaking point as unprecedented numbers of illegal immigrants continue to test the capacity of cities to respond. Storm Ophelia is moving northeast. Thousands are still without power in North Carolina and Virginia following heavy rain and downed trees. Stay tuned for more. Welcome back. Former President Trump took a big lead over President Biden in a recent poll. The poll released yesterday by ABC and the Washington Post has Trump nine points over Biden in a hypothetical 2024 rematch. Trump came in at 51 percent, Biden at 42 percent. 54 percent of Republicans polled said Trump was their first choice for a 2024 primary pick. Only 33 percent of Democrats asked said Biden would be their first choice, with 62 percent saying they would pick someone else. 44 percent of those surveyed said they are not doing as well financially since Biden took office. Only 15 percent said they are doing better off under Biden. Overall, Biden's approval rating came in at 37 percent with over 60% disapproving of his handling of the economy and immigration at the southern border. With Trump polling and poll leading in polls, the GOP frontrunner will be skipping the second Republican primary debate in California on Wednesday. He will travel to Detroit to speak to auto workers instead amid the ongoing strike. Let's get some analysis of the presidential campaign, including the poll we just mentioned, Trump's decision to skip the second debate, and some hints from Robert F. Kennedy Jr. We're bringing in Lenny McAllister, a senior fellow at the Commonwealth Foundation. He joins us live to discuss this. Great to have you with us, Lenny. Good morning. Do you think that this ABC Washington Post poll is an outlier like WAPO suggests or that it's actually meaning that Trump's picking up steam here? I think it's an outlier in the sense that people forget that presidential elections are not done by way of the popular vote and you whoever gets the most votes wins. It's by electoral college. So, for example, uh, Donald Trump's not going to win California. And because the Democrat, Joe Biden, or whoever it would end up being in 2024, is going to win California, win New York, win Illinois, win some other blue states, they're going to have a huge electoral college advantage towards getting to 270. It's a race to 270, not a race to 50 plus one. That's what makes the presidential race so much different than every other race in the American democracy. And so when you look at these polls, 
and it shows you that somebody has a five or six point lead. If you then do the breakdown state by state, that's when you get a better idea as to who's actually ahead. I would venture to say that it's still neck and neck between Biden and Trump with states such as Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Iowa, and others being those swing states still, Florida even, those swing states that would make the difference as to who becomes president after 2024's election or not. And that's such a good point that you make there, Lenny, because we've seen candidates win the actual popular vote, but lose in electoral college. And the spring swing states are key. And even some say that swing counties are the big difference because like Pennsylvania, you might have a whole block that's for the red, a whole block that's for the blue, but a couple counties can switch. Trump is skipping the second GOP debate on Wednesday, and he's going to visit Detroit. Do you think he can win over the union's favor? I think what Trump's trying to do is repeat what he had happened in 2016, which is let the union endorse the Democrat and let the union membership vote for Trump. That's what you saw in Michigan. That's what you saw in Wisconsin. That's what you saw in Pennsylvania. And that's what you saw that led to a, a Trump victory. That's the play. He's not necessarily going there to get union endorsement or to try to line himself up for that going into next year. But if he can, number one, make a scene, steal some attention, drive it towards Detroit. Two, show that he's with the blue collar voter, which is exactly how he made his money. Again, the, 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 the ironic and dare I say paradoxical statement of being a blue collar billionaire, which Donald Trump really never is if you look at his background, but that imagery worked in 2016 with the type of person that's on strike in Detroit right now. Again, if he can not get the union endorsement of leadership, but get more of the union vote of the membership, that's his path to victory in November of 2024. Very interesting analysis, Lenny. And of course, when we look back to September 2020, the America's largest police union, the Fraternal Order of Police, endorsed Trump. Now, that may have just been because he was backing the blue, so they backed him. And kind of the opposite happened there, where some of the union members actually were going against their union's decision because they did not support that. But RFK Jr., he's hinted at a third-party run what would that mean for Biden? It's interesting because people think that RFK Jr., just because he has a D behind his name, that he would only pull Democratic voters. But if you listen to the types of things he says, for example, being such an outspoken anti-vaxxer, some of the questioning he's done of the establishment, that plays to the Trump voter. That plays to the, the further right wing of the Republican Party. RFK Jr. has the capacity to skim just enough votes off the left and just enough votes off the right to make the election interesting. People remember, for example, 1992 and Ross Perot. He primarily pulled votes from George H.W. Bush, and that's why Bill Clinton ended up winning the presidency. This is not what RFK Jr. could do in 2024 if he's a third-party candidate. He may pull from both which then makes that independent voter, the one that doesn't affiliate either way, that much more important. The plot thickens there, Lenny. And of course, some are saying that this would be disastrous for Biden. And Rasmussen says that 33% of Dems would back RFK Jr. if he ran as a third party candidate. But like you said, there might be people from both parties or even independents that are going to vote for him instead. Lenny McAllister, senior fellow with the Commonwealth Foundation. Always great talking to you. Thank you. God bless you all. And turning to the southern border, the wave of illegal migration is still ongoing. NTD's Daniel Monahan has the latest. Democratic El Paso Mayor Oscar Leeser says the city has maxed out its capabilities. 
the city of El Paso only has so many resources and we have come to what we look at a breaking point right now. The city is opening up an overflow shelter to handle the amount of illegal immigrants. The facility can hold about 400 people, but officials say El Paso already has about 6,500 migrants in its custody and is receiving more than 2,000 every day. The city has sheltered over 7,000 illegal immigrants and served more than 16,000 meals in the last 10 days. Mayor Leeser said Saturday that the city chartered five buses to take illegal immigrants to New York, Chicago, and Denver. That's something Republican governors in Texas and Florida have taken heat for. But the Democrat Leeser said all the migrants on the El Paso buses were going voluntarily to the cities of their choice. El Paso Emergency Management Director Jorge Rodriguez reacts. They sign a form stating that they're going uh, voluntarily to the destination of their choice. Uh, no one is being forced. Presidential hopeful Senator Tim Scott slammed President Biden's plan to join the UAW picket line in Michigan. Biden posted on social media Friday he is heading to Michigan Tuesday to, quote, stand in solidarity with the men and women of UAW as they fight for a fair share of the value they helped create. In related news, Mexico agreed to deport migrants from its border cities. The move is intended to take the pressure from cities like El Paso, San Diego, and Eagle Pass, Texas. They will also implement more than a dozen actions to prevent migrants from risking their lives by using the railway system to reach the U.S.-Mexico border. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. From migration to force majeure, severe flooding in parts of coastal North Carolina and Virginia. As Tropical Storm Ophelia made landfall, rain and heavy winds caused power outages. There were several reports of downed trees, but no reports of any major road closures as of this morning. NTD's Cost Temines has more updates on the storm. After being downgraded from a tropical storm on Sunday, Ophelia still threatened parts of the Northeast from Washington to New York City, including life-threatening waves and dangerous surf conditions and rip currents. Numerous communities reported coastal flooding. As of Sunday, thousands were still left without power. According to the National Hurricane Center, the storm came ashore near Emerald Isle with near-hurricane strength winds of 70 miles per hour on Saturday. Winds weakened as it traveled north with the center of the storm crossing into Virginia by Sunday evening. Ophelia churned up the east coast with the storm moving north at about 13 miles per hour. Around 8 inches of rain was seen in parts of North Carolina on Saturday, with up to 4 inches in the rest of the mid-Atlantic region on Sunday. On Friday night, five people, including three children, had to be rescued by the Coast Guard off Cape Lookout in North Carolina after being stuck on a catamaran in choppy waters. The storm had weakened by Sunday to sustained wind speeds of around 45 miles per hour. It is now moving further northeast along the mid-Atlantic coast. Cost MNS, NTD News. Yeah, stay safe, everybody, especially people um, living in basements. Oh, right, yeah, and watch out for mold. Make sure you do dry the place out, clear yeah. out any of that. Yes. Good one. Up next, a convention to raise awareness of communist China's past and present genocidal policies just took place. We have the details. And many thought California Governor Gavin Newsom signing a transgender bill was a shoo-in, but he vetoed it in a surprise move. 
Good to have you back. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is suspending school choice at four schools with ties to the Chinese Communist Party. The decision comes after an investigation by the Florida Department of Education. It found that schools in Weston and Winter Park maintain direct connections with the CCP. The governor's office said the school's associations constitute a, an imminent threat to the health, safety and welfare of students and the public. DeSantis signed a law in May that prohibits any school affiliated with a foreign country of concern like China from taking part in the state's school choice scholarship programs. The directive to suspend the schools from the program is part of the state's ongoing efforts to distance itself from any influence of the Chinese Communist Party regime. Turning now to human rights in China, a university professor walks us through the Chinese Communist Party's past and ongoing genocides. Here's more. Over the weekend, the International Commission for Human Rights and Religious Freedom held a convention in Washington, D.C. The event sought to raise awareness for the long-forgotten genocides still haunting the minds of many survivors today. Sen Nai is a mechanical engineering professor at the Catholic University of America. While presenting historical images and statistics, he spoke about communist China's past and ongoing genocides. They understand that Communist Party culture cannot survive uh, in China on the land of divine. So they systematically destroyed Chinese culture, Chinese traditional value, as I mentioned today. In 1966, then-Chinese leader Mao Zedong spearheaded a decade-long political campaign known as the Cultural Revolution. With Mao's teachings in hand, mobilized youth called the Red Guards began to destroy historical relics and statues en masse. All traditions were condemned. Teachers and intellectuals were interrogated, beaten, and even killed in public. An estimate of up to 80 million people perished under Mao's leadership. Fast forward to the late 1990s, another nationwide persecution was underway, this time targeting a spiritual group, Falun Gong practitioners. The persecution of Falun Gong per se involved 70 to 100 million people. Each person has family members, good friends, which probably involved 300 or 400 million Chinese being direct or indirectly being affected or persecuted by this uh, Communist Party. Falun Gong, also known as Falun Dafa, is a spiritual doctrine consisting of five gentle, slow-moving exercises. Practitioners follow the core teachings of truthfulness, compassion, and forbearance. In July of 1999, the CCP launched a nationwide persecution against the practice, even creating a police branch to conduct surveillance and arrest. Millions have been imprisoned. Over 100,000 have been tortured or abused in custody, with thousands dying from torture. Many have been murdered on demand to supply the nation's organ transplant market. But according to Nai, a spiritual awakening is happening in China. A large number of people began to openly renounce their membership in the Chinese Communist Party and its affiliated youth groups. This forms uh, the fertile grounds of a civil, civil, civilized society that definitely will bring good to the Chinese race and with the least uh, casualty laws of economy or human life. As of now, more than 400 million people have quit the Chinese Communist Party. And now we're heading to Malcolm Hudson in the UK for some short headlines from around the world. Good morning from the UK, Evelyn and Kevin. Intelligence shared with Canada by the Five Eyes partners informed Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's recent allegations about a possible link between the Indian government and the murder of a Canadian citizen. That's according to the US Ambassador to Canada, David Cohen. He said, 
there was a lot of communication between Canada and the United States about this. Staying in Canada, visitors to a Canadian amusement park in Ontario got stuck upside down on a ride for nearly 30 minutes on Saturday. Local media said two people reported chest pain and loss of feeling in their legs. A witness said the stuck visitors shouted, get us down. The ride remained closed yesterday for further investigation. France announced it will pull its 1,500 soldiers out of Niger. It follows a coup in the West African country in July. The exit comes after weeks of pressure from the junta and popular demonstrations. Until the coup, Niger had remained a key security partner of France and the United States. Tensions are high in northern Kosovo a day after four people were killed in a shootout there between police and ethnic Serb gunmen. The gunmen stormed a village and barricaded themselves into a Serbian Orthodox monastery, which police retook late on Sunday. Kosovo's Prime Minister blamed Serbia for financing and sending armed men to Kosovo. Serbia's president has denied the allegations. Amsterdam's soccer team Ajax abandoned a match yesterday after fans threw flares onto the pitch, with many landing near the goal. The team were losing 3-0 at the time. Angry supporters tried to force their way into the stadium until mounted police dispersed them with tear gas. The team's coach called it a jet black day. That's all from me. Back to you both. Thank you. Uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom vetoed a bill that would have forced judges to consider a parent's affirmation of a child's gender identity when deciding custody and other matters. The bill added a parent's affirmation of gender identity to the state's standard for the health, safety and welfare of the child. Newsom wrote that he shares a deep commitment to advancing the rights of so-called transgender Californians. But he says he urges caution when the state government attempts to dictate legal standards for courts to apply. Newsom added that other-minded elected officials in California and other states could use this strategy to diminish the civil rights of vulnerable communities. Those in opposition are calling attention to another California bill dubbed state-sanctioned kidnapping. Critics say AB 665, which is awaiting Governor Newsom's signature, would legally emancipate 12-year-olds. Attorneys Kevin Snyder and Aaron Friday reacted yesterday. They are using the natural love of parents uh, to want to keep their children and to hang on to their authority. But they say, if you're going to do that, you're going to have to bend the knee and violate your conscience. Queer theory is all about turning what is normal upside down. Queer theory is about breaking apart the loving bonds between children and their parents, between husband and wife, between friends, the trust bond that we used to have with schools that no longer exists, AB 665 removes the legal requirements that a child be a victim of abuse, incest or danger before they can leave home and check into a government residential shelter without any notice to their parents. If AB 665 passes, those guardrails would be removed from the family code and children as young as 12 will be able to self-consent into a government shelter to receive mental health and residential shelter services. Under the bill, all a child would need to sign off on such a move would be the agreement of a so-called professional person. But the bill has a broad definition of professional person, which includes a clinical counselor, trainee, 
or a social work intern. Heading to break now, the government is headed for a shutdown. How could it impact the country and your wallet? NTD business host Don Ma brings us more. The U.S. Air Force gets some new gear, an AI-powered drone. A specialist tells NTD all about this loyal wingman, how it can execute lethal strikes and risky maneuvers without endangering the lives of American service members. That's after the break. Good to have you back. The U.S. government may be on the brink of a shutdown this week. Congress remains at an impasse on a funding deal. Meanwhile, federal departments and agencies have started planning to stop non-essential government functions. Here to discuss is NTD business host Don Ma. Don, good to see you this morning. Tell me, what will be the effects on Americans and their finances? Well, Evelyn, of course, uh, the first impact will be on the nearly 4 million Americans who are federal employees, right? I mean, that's obvious. Essential workers uh, will, will remain on the job, but others will be temporarily dismissed uh, until the shutdown ends, potentially. Uh, but none will be paid during this impasse, and that's the important thing. For many of them, uh, a shutdown will strain their finances, uh, just like it did in the 35-day funding lapse uh, just a few years ago. Actually, people across the country uh, returned holiday presents during that time because, of course, they needed cash. Uh, they, they missed a mortgage payment, uh, took, took out short-term loans, and, and ran up their credit card debt because uh, they had no paychecks for a month, Evelyn. Oh, wow, yeah. I mean, no income for a whole month can, is, is a big deal for many, right? So what will be the impact on Americans, though, who are not working for the government? Sure. Um, for those who are thinking of traveling, the White House is sounding alarms about massive disruptions to air travel uh, because uh, tens of thousands of air traffic controllers and transportation security administration personnel uh, is going to work without pay if the shutdown happens. And if we look back to the 2019 shutdown, hundreds of TSA officers caught, called out from work. Uh, many of them tried to find other ways to make money. And, and speaking of that shutdown, right, we saw that one caused uncertainty, uncertainty for thousands of low-income tenants as well, um, those who rely on the federal government uh, to help pay their rent. Um, but the main takeaways here is to, you know, stay out of debt, keep cash available on hand, and diversify your investments. Uh, of course, these are uh, good words of advice for personal finance in general, Evelyn. Well, that's right, and all the more valuable and volatile environment like this these days. So anything, what else do you have for us today? Yeah, sure. Just uh, another quick update about student loan payments. Uh, they're due in October. Uh, this is for the first time in more than three years. But the Biden administration is offering what it's called an on-ramp period uh, through th September 30th of next year. And what this means is during the next 12 months, students will be able to skip payments. And that is without facing the harsh financial consequences of defaulting on their loans. Uh, but borrowers aren't off the hook entirely. Interest will still accrue, uh, but for more information, head on to the U.S. Department of Education's website. Um, just one more update, Evelyn. Uh, more strikes, it seems like, could happen in the healthcare industry. More than 75,000 workers of Kaiser Permanente plan to go on strike for three days in October. Kaiser uh, is actually the largest nonprofit healthcare provider in the U.S. The union is demanding better work conditions and more investment in healthcare training. 
And the walkout could affect facilities in six states. Uh, that's including California, Virginia, and Washington. Kaiser says uh, it's, it, its talks will continue until a fair settlement is, uh, is, is reached. But other than those two updates, that's all from me, Evelyn. Mm. Thank you very much, Don, for your insights today, host of Entity Business. Thank you, Evelyn. Moving on to some defense coverage, mixing artificial intelligence and lethal weapons. The U.S. military is now using AI in its warfighting capabilities. I spoke to someone with in-depth knowledge on a new AI-powered drone that's now part of the arsenal. Take a look. Joining me now is Christopher Alexander, the Chief Analytics Officer of Pioneer Development Group. Thank you for your time today, Christopher. Thank you. This Valkyrie drone, what can you tell us about its capabilities? Well, um, the Valkyrie is part of the Loyal Wingman program that was started by DARPA. And it's this really revolutionary new, new um, strategy where you have a, a manned fighter that costs, I think, 35 million, 40 million or more, actually maybe 100 million, um, uh, with a very inexpensive uh, drone that's, that's operating alongside of it that cost a few million dollars. And the idea is that um, you can uh, take much more dangerous missions that you would never be willing to, to risk human life or the airframe for, um, and you can make conflict with the United States prohibitively expensive um, as any adversary. So it becomes a form of, of deterrence the same way like our nuclear strategy would be. So, so what would that is, look like in terms of so, having um, such a, a huge fleet of these actual unmanned craft that can be much cheaper than training a whole army and stopping another army that doesn't have that capability. So, so yeah, so what, what it would look like is you, you have one F-35, I think you have three of these drones that are flying alongside it as if they were a, a, a completed, you know, formation. Uh, so the pilot, uh, the, the human operator is allowed to get those drones to go out and do any number of things, whether it's engage at, at, at safer distances for the pilot, uh, an enemy aircraft, flying lower than they can normally for air defense, um, just the risk profile drops exponentially and the risk of human life and the cost drops exponentially. That's in the air. Uh, underwater, you, you could look at having these um, underwater drones that carry uh, Tomahawk line attack missiles or other weapon systems that again cost pennies on the dollar from say a submarine. That's really interesting, Christopher, all the applications here. And of course, we know that a human has to sign off before a drone like this takes the lethal firing. But we on the ethics front, we can see that the AI weapons, we, we wonder if they're accurate enough to carry out these kind of strikes, especially considering that there have been past errors. Like when the American spec ops, they thought that they destroyed ISIS staging areas back in 2016 in Syria, but they actually killed over 120 villagers. So what's your thoughts here? Sure, and, and uh, I, I've attended a joint targeting school and learned both, you know, lethal and non-lethal fires processes. And you know, tragically, there is there is collateral damage. There are mistakes that are made. Um, what's I think heartening in this is a the United States goes to to to, extent, to an extent that virtually no one on Earth does, maybe our European allies, to avoid friendly fire uh, uh, collateral damage and other other issues, as we're seeing in the fighting, you know, in, in Ukraine, for example, uh, by comparison. But at the, at the end of the day, um, you have a human being that's, that's approving this, and that's not really about the AI. It's about the sensors that are looking at the target and providing the data to make the decision. Hopefully they can weigh this very carefully as they go forward. Christopher Alexander, Chief Analytics Officer at Pioneer Development Group, thank you for your analysis. Thank you. We're going to switch up gears here and quickly bring you some of the latest headlines. 
The New York Fire Department says that first responder deaths related to 9-11 reached 343. That equals the number of first responder deaths on the day of the actual attacks. The report also said 11,000 firefighters have World Trade Center related diseases, including 3,500 with cancer. A Michigan toddler who wandered away from his home was found safe thanks to two family dogs, including one that was used as a pillow, one that used a pillow. Officials say that the girl wandered away from home barefoot. Police found her a few hours later in a wooded area about three miles away. She was asleep with her head on the family dog. She was checked out and found to be in good condition. A rare $10,000 bill sold for a record-breaking $480,000. The bills were discontinued in 1969, and only a few hundred are left. In case you're wondering, that's Salmon P. Chase's picture on the bill. He's one of America's most successful politicians. He was Treasury Secretary under President Lincoln and later became Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. And over to sports, the Miami Dolphins thrashed the Denver Broncos by a score of 70 to 20 yesterday. 70 points, <clears throat> excuse me, is the most scored by any NFL team since 1966. The Dolphins had an opportunity to break the record for most points scored in a game, but coach Mike McDaniel decided to run out the clock instead. And still to come, are governments working against farmers who supply food to the world? We look at a new Epoch original documentary exploring that question. And the Miss NTD's Chinese beauty pageant now in full swing. Contestants shared what brought them to the stage. We have coverage from the first day of the event. It's good to have you back with us. Are governments worldwide actively working against the farmers and ranchers who supply food to the world? That question is explored in a new Epoch original documentary. Let's take a look. The red carpet premiere of the Epoch original documentary, No Farmers, No Food, Will You Eat the Bugs? was presented during the Stop 30 by 30 Summit in Irving, Texas. You go to the store, food is there. You hear some murmurings about farmers having problems, but you don't really see it. But we went out and we spoke with farmers uh, in Europe, Asia, and even, even in the heartland here in America. And it's true, like the government regulations are really, really hurting them, putting them out of business, uh, forcing them off their land, and making it unprofitable to do farming. Rat protiv poljoprivrednika je započeo u Nizuzemskoj. Host of Epoch TV program Facts Matter, Roman Balmakov, is the movie's host and director. The film talks about world governments going against farmers and their work in the name of environmental protection. Balmakov says this trend is leading to a global food crisis and a scenario like China's famine in the 1950s due to Mao Zedong's Great Leap Forward policy. So right now it's like Agenda 2030, it sounds very good, we're going to save the planet, save the water, save the air. But what I want to avoid is a situation where 100 years from now, we'll look back on this period of time and say, Agenda 2030, that was, a, that was a rough famine that killed a billion people, you know. The Stop 30 by 30 summit was held by Texas Agriculture Commissioner Sid Miller and American Stewards of Liberty. The summit is a movement against the Biden administration's plan called 30 by 30, which aims to take away lands and waters for conservation and the environment. 
I mean, it's one thing to lose your farm to farm crisis because that's, you know, economic things, but to have your government coming after you and your land and your occupation, it just, it just breaks my heart. It was said that you could tear down the cities, but if you left the farms intact, the cities would be re rebuilt as if by magic. But if you tear down the farms, leave the cities, the cities will decay and crumble. Almost 200 attendees watched the film. Many of them say it's a must-see for all. If you enjoy having abundant, affordable food on your table, you need to watch this documentary so you understand how it works. I think it's really super important they watch it just for the, uh, the education. And then at that point, if you know, then, then you can be a voice and do something about it. So my advice is to go see No Farmers, No Food. To watch the full documentary on Epoch TV, visit nofarmersnofood.com. A change of topics. If you've been longing to see traditional beauty, look no further. A Chinese beauty pageant steeped in moral values and grace is underway. That's right. Entity's Arlene Richards spoke to some of the contestants yesterday and learned the deeper meanings behind the pageant. A night of poison grace, organizers announced the first annual NTD Global Chinese Beauty Pageant. 32 contestants from several countries came to New York for day one of the pageant. The event marks the start of a new era in the beauty pageant industry. Organizers believe this pageant stands out from others because it advocates the pure truthfulness, goodness, and beauty of a traditional Chinese woman. The pageant aims to promote the aesthetic values found in traditional Chinese culture. It also pushes for a return to pure beauty. Contestants shared why they wanted to be in the pageant. I've always been really interested in classical, traditional Chinese culture, but growing up in the West, I was born and raised in Toronto, you don't get as much opportunities to come into contact with this type of traditional culture. So when I heard about this pageant, I thought it was such a unique and special opportunity to just really learn more about my heritage and improve myself as a woman and a person. I think it is a true icon, like an iconic moment for a lot of people to come here and represent the true traditional values of China and what our culture is all about. And I think inner beauty is all about what we see in ourselves and what we see in other people as well. Contestants will ultimately compete for a chance to be crowned Miss NTD and receive the Phoenix Crown. The crown includes five blue gemstones and several freshwater pearls. The different stones represent virtues and purity. Pageant organizers say it's critical to return to pure beauty in today's world. Because we all noticed that in the past couple of decades, the definition or the concept of beauty and aesthetics has been degrading dramatically. He said in today's society, people have forgotten what true beauty is. And this has changed their view on what is beautiful, which negatively impacts the entire society and future generations. The finals and crowning ceremony will be next Saturday, September 30, at SUNY Purchase Performing Arts Center. For tickets and more information, go to MissNTD.org. Reporting from White Plains, New York, I'm Arlene Richards, NTD News. That's great. And as we mentioned, the finals and coronation of the Miss NTD pageant are coming up next Saturday, so get ready. And if you want tickets, you can get them at MissNTD.com.
That's right. And we're now heading to the, the second part of our broadcast. Yeah, stay with us for some more coverage coming up, including some great interviews discussing a surprising U-turn by the GOP. Here we go. A possible end to the five-month-long WGA strike. We have more on the union's tentative agreement with Hollywood Studios. The wave of illegal immigration is ongoing, and this time it's a Democratic mayor sending buses to cities like Chicago and New York. Republicans plan to embrace ballot harvesting as the 2024 elections draw near. We speak to a former member of the Federal Election Commission to find out more. Ukrainian President Zelensky made a big announcement after his recent visit to Canada and the U.S. More on the move he'd been calling an absolute fantasy until only recently. Residents of the ravaged town of Lahaina are bracing to return. Officials are set to lift entry restrictions following the devastating wildfires seven weeks ago. And we visit a Mexican family that has preserved an ancient tradition of a once highly sought after and precious product. Hello again and welcome back to NTD Good Morning. I'm Kevin Hogan. Welcome back from me also. I'm Evelyn Lee. Let's get to our breaking news from overnight. The Writers Guild of America's strike could be over. Union leaders reached a tentative agreement with Hollywood Studios last night. After days of negotiating and a nearly five-month strike, no deals in the works for striking actors yet. The WGA described the deal as exceptional in its announcement and suspended picketing. It's encouraging its members to join picket lines for the actors' strike this week instead. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more details on the possible end of the writer's strike. The Writers Guild of America, or WGA, said it reached a preliminary labor agreement with major studios on Sunday. The deal could end one of two strikes that have thrown a wrench in Hollywood production and cost California's economy billions of dollars. The terms of the three-year contract are not yet known and still need to be approved by WGA leadership and members before it can take effect. The WGA described the agreement as meaningful gains and protections for writers. The union's negotiating committee said it would only share details after receiving final contract language. Negotiators will then vote on whether to recommend the deal to leadership, who will decide if it's presented to members for a vote. The Screen Actors Union remains on strike. The Guild represents around 160,000 film and television actors, stunt performers, voiceover artists and other media professionals. Members walked off the job in July, making it the first time in 63 years that Hollywood has faced a strike by both unions at the same time. The WGA says union members could be authorized to return to work Tuesday before the agreement is officially ratified. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Turning to the southern border, the wave of illegal immigration is still ongoing. NTD's Daniel Monahan has the latest. Democratic El Paso Mayor Oscar Leeser says the city has maxed out its capabilities. The city of El Paso only has so many resources and we have come to what we look at a breaking point right now. The city is opening up an overflow shelter to handle the amount of illegal immigrants. The facility can hold about 400 people, but officials say El Paso already has about 6,500 migrants in its custody and is receiving more than 2,000 every day. The city has sheltered over 7,000 illegal immigrants and served more than 16,000 meals in the last 10 days. 
Mayor Leeser said Saturday that the city chartered five buses to take illegal immigrants to New York, Chicago, and Denver. In related news, Mexico agreed to deport migrants from its border cities. The move is intended to take the pressure from cities like El Paso, San Diego, and Eagle Pass, Texas. They will also implement more than a dozen actions to prevent migrants from risking their lives by using the railway system to reach the U.S.-Mexico border. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Former President Trump took a big lead over President Biden in a recent poll. The poll released yesterday by ABC and The Washington Post has Trump nine points over Biden in a hypothetical 2024 rematch. Trump came in at 51 percent, Biden at 42 percent. 54 percent of Republicans polled said Trump was their first choice for a 2024 primary pick. Only 33 percent of Democrats asked said Biden would be their first choice, with 62 percent saying they would pick someone else. 44 percent of those surveyed said they are not doing as well financially since Biden took office. Only 15 percent said they are doing better off under Biden. Overall, Biden's approval rating came in at 37 percent, with over 60 percent disapproving of his handling of the economy and immigration at the southern border. With Trump leading in polls, the GOP frontrunner will be skipping the second Republican primary debate on, in California on Wednesday. He will travel to Detroit to speak to auto workers instead amid the ongoing strike. And Republicans are embracing ballot harvesting for 2024, but it's a practice they have been condemning for years. Let's unpack this. Hans von Spakovsky, a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation, joins us live. Good morning, Hans. Good morning. Why has the GOP taken this U-turn on ballot harvesting? Well, I don't think it's so much a U-turn as uh, taking advantage of the rules, unfortunately, that are in place in some states. You know, uh, uh, they've still worked to try to get rid of it. Uh, Georgia, for example, the Republican-controlled legislature there banned uh, ballot trafficking, which is what it really should be called. But I think this is kind of like uh, a Super Bowl. You know, if you go into a Super Bowl, you have to play by the rules that are in place. That doesn't mean that you don't, at the same time, after the game, try to get those rules changed. And you've seen state legislatures, particularly in red states, still trying to uh, ban ballot trafficking. But in blue states and other places where, where it's in place, you might as well take advantage of the rule while it's there. So they may not agree with it, but they're doing it because it is legal. Why do you call right. it ballot trafficking? Well, because that's really what it is. Remember, for folks who don't understand this, states that allow this are saying that any third party stranger can show up at a voter's house and pick up their absentee ballot to deliver it. Why is it ballot trafficking? Because you're giving people who have a stake in the outcome of the election uh, access to ballots. So that means candidates, campaign staffers, party activists can all show up at your house and say, hey, hand me your ballot. I'll deliver it for you. And you're, you're uh, <laughs> supposed to be confident that they deliver it, that they don't change it, uh, that they're not going to pressure and try to coerce individuals in their homes to vote a particular way. I mean, that's why it, it should not be allowed. Well, for example, Alabama is the only state where the voter has to be the one to submit their ballot. Now, in Illinois, also, someone could be chosen by the voter, and in Texas, it has to be specific people. And there does need to be security between voter and ballot box. Right. Will Republicans benefit 
from taking advantage of this? Well, look, that's a good question. Um, I, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I do know that when this was first changed in California just a couple of years ago, remember, California used to ban this. And then a couple of years ago, they made it legal, and it led them to sweep races in places like Orange County, California. Um, once Republicans actually got active and started doing the same thing, it seemed to negate uh, the effect of it. So uh, will it help them? Well, it probably will, but that doesn't mean they shouldn't still work to try to eventually make it illegal. So Hans, you touched on this. What are some of the more of the ethical concerns surrounding ballot harvesting? Well, look, the Heritage Foundation, where I work, runs a election fraud database. And the cases involving absentee ballot fraud uh, are, are, are seem to predominate. That's the easiest way for people to steal ballots. And for anyone who doubts this happens, uh, just take a look at the 2018 um, race for Congress, the 9th Congressional District in North Carolina. That's exactly what was going on there ballot trafficking by staffers working for one of the candidates. That election was overturned. Half a dozen individuals convicted of absentee ballot fraud because they were taking advantage of the system. Well, thank you for your insight. Hans von Spakovsky at the Heritage Foundation, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And President Biden has announced the creation of the first federal office on gun-related violence prevention. He says it'll save lives as Congress is stalled on passing tighter gun laws. Vice President Kamala Harris will oversee the new office. Its goal is to find new actions on gun control the White House can take without Congress, including by identifying potential executive actions and working with local governments to pass laws on the state level. For more on this, we spoke to retired U.S. Navy officer and former New Jersey police detective, Lieutenant Stephen Rogers. It's good to have you, Lieutenant, this morning. So on the White House Office of Gun Violence Prevention, can you start by just telling us what you know or what you expect so far about how this office intends to increase gun safety? Well, look, it's another waste of time, another waste of taxpayer dollars. Uh, they have stated, stated it as part of their mission is to increase uh, gun safety programs throughout the country. Well, they ought to do some research. They'll find out that the NRA, for example, has one of the most effective gun safety programs that are now being utilized in a lot of uh, schools, elementary schools and high schools, as well as civic organizations across America. Their intent is a waste of time. Gun shootings and gun safety is still a big issue in this country, though. And then what do you think they should do or what ideally do you think would want to see from this office for it to maybe make an impact? Well, I'd like them to fund police departments to give uh, law enforcement agencies from the federal to local level the tools they need to fight gun violence. Look, uh, President Biden says that this is a public safety, I'm sorry, public health issue. No, it's a criminal justice issue. So what I'd like to see this commission do is to disband and uh, utilize resources of our government uh, into areas that will be very, very effective, which is crime prevention against gun violence gun safety advocates have actually been pushing for an office like this for quite a while. Now, why do you think um, the administration or President Biden just created this office now? Well, he created it now because 
uh, to begin with, there are a lot of state elections coming up at this November. You've got uh, congressional elections and obviously a presidential election uh, coming up very soon. It's always about politics when it comes to the Biden administration and, may I add, the Democrats. This is a, they're trying to create a political situation where they're going to uh, uh, just appease that those advocates and their base. This is a real serious problem. It should be bipartisan. And the way you get it effectively done is you enhance the ability of law enforcement to do their job. All right. Well, thank you so much, Lieutenant Stephen Rogers, for your time this morning and your insights. I appreciate it. Well, always a pleasure. Thank you. Just ahead, Oklahoma's pension system is allowed to continue to work with BlackRock after being put to the vote. We speak with the Oklahoma State Treasurer to find out more. And residents of the ravaged town of Lahaina brace for an emotional return as officials lift re-entry restrictions for the first time since the wildfires. We take a look at a Mexican family that's keeping the tradition of a precious and once highly revered product alive. Stay with us for that. Welcome back. Oklahoma's pension system gets an exemption from a new law to allow it to continue working with banks like BlackRock. I spoke to Oklahoma State Treasurer Todd Russ to find out more on the issue. So there's, a, there's about six financial institutions that are on the state of Oklahoma's restricted financial list now. BlackRock was one of those probably at the top of the list and uh, we've met with them. We really haven't seen a substantive change and they're still on the list. Of course, they've been doing business with the uh, uh, public employees pension for a long time. They have a, a, an unusual amount of holdings for one single money manager. They, they hold 60% of a $12 billion portfolio. And uh, so obviously there's some, some long-term uh, and large ties to that pension. So they, they really are, are not motivated and uh, uh, would rather not do any kind of uh, divestiture from BlackRock. Well, you had a commission meeting and I'm sure you went in with, uh, with uh, many questions. So what did you learn there and what impression did you leave that meeting with? So I actually sat on the OPRS board uh, as a, uh, a statewide elected official in the Treasury and uh, was in the board meeting with OPRS uh, and went through the agenda item and had about an hour and a half discussion, asked them several questions, asked them if they would uh, slow down and go through the complete process on the RFP, several other concerns that I had as a board member, and they declined to do any of those or take them under consideration. What would need to be found that it will be found that it was illegal? So the language in the statute's pretty clear in some in most areas actually. It says that you've got to give your you got to give a a, a good faith effort. Uh, I think that's some pretty specific language and the and the information has to be clear and convincing. It just can't be, you know, hypothesis and estimates and conjecture and those kinds of things. Um, and then it does allow for delay of the divestment uh, from these restricted financial companies if certain criteria are found or met. And uh, for the most part, in some cases, none of that criteria was met. There was no reason for them to not divest from BlackRock, yet they, they said that they were just going to claim a fiduciary exemption 
in general because they felt like that uh, uh, it would cost the uh, pension system some some estimated exorbitant number. Um, the numbers that we came back with that are clear and convincing, uh, actual numbers are much, much less than what they ended up by the time the conversation got through. They said it would be something like possibly $10 million. The only hard numbers we saw relative to some comparisons were in the in the $20,000, $30,000 range. So there's a lot of conversation probably uh, to be had on that. Well, thank you very much for giving us these insights and these updates. Oklahoma State Treasurer Todd Russ. Thank you very much. President Volodymyr Zelensky told Ukrainians the United States agreed to jointly produce weapons with Ukraine in a move he called an absolute fantasy until recently. Zelensky just returned from visits to the U.S. and Canada. He made the announcement in his nightly address. Zelensky said the joint pact will include air defense systems crucial for defense against Russia's air attacks. He also said the deal will boost employment by expanding Ukraine's industrial base. President Biden said the U.S. committed to helping Ukraine build a force capable of ensuring long-term security and deterring future threats against their freedom. Zelensky is also asking the U.S. for $24 billion in additional military and humanitarian aid. It's been seven weeks since the devastating wildfire in Maui, and residents of the town of Lahaina are preparing to return. Officials are expected to lift entry restrictions to the area later today, after the deadliest U.S. wildfire in more than a century. Authorities have divided the burned area into 17 zones and dozens of subzones. Residents or property owners of the first area to be cleared for re-entry will be allowed to return on supervised visits today and tomorrow. Local officials say residents will be given the space and privacy to reflect or grieve as they see fit. Those returning will be given water, sanitation facilities and transportation if needed, as well as medical and mental health care. And now let's head to Mexico, where one family is keeping alive the traditional production of what was once considered a highly precious product. Let's take a look. Mayeli Garcia is making cochineal dye. Also known as carmine red, it is an intense natural red pigment dye produced from farmed insects. It was already used by the nobility of indigenous people to dye garments. Once considered as precious as silver and gold, its use has now waned, with the increased use of chemical dyes. The cochineal red dye has been cultivated here in Mexico since pre-Hispanic times. Our ancestors harvested it in an artisanal way. It's a parasite of the nopal cactus and feeds on it by subtracting all its nutrients. Each insect, known as Dactylopios cocos, must be bred to a larvae stage and planted on a previously wounded cactus pad. It is then left for months to feed and mature. Then each must be harvested by hand, usually with a tiny brush, sifted, cleaned and left to dry in the sun. Garcia and her family are one of the few producers that still exist in Mexico, as traditional production methods are seen as costly and labor-intensive. It's difficult, but what motivates us is to think that if we stop producing it, there will be even fewer producers. 
Recent studies have suggested that chemical dyes, particularly some of the red ones, could have adverse health effects. If consumed as food colorings or applied in cosmetics, which has stoked demand for cochineal. Despite the difficulty of making a living with a small amount of cochineal she produces, Mayeli has a very good reason for keeping on with her endeavor. More people have become aware of the importance of keeping our culture alive, the legacy of our ancestors. Artisans who dye garments have more awareness and highly value the cochineal dye, as well as those who look for those garments that have a higher value for being high quality. This helps to be sought after so that this activity won't be lost. Meanwhile, to supplement her income, Mayeli is also trying to diversify into other products using the Nopal cactus by creating soaps, creams, cosmetics, jam and other products. Cost MNS, NTD News. History Channel all over again. <laughs> That's true. And I, I do appreciate the this effort to preserve culture, though. And it seems like I heard that natural dyes last longer, so it seems like in that case they did it better. So That's good. And it reminds me of the story about the artist who actually started to make his own... Ah, right. We had that. Um, his own paint dye or something yeah. like that. Yeah, I remember that. All right, it all ties together, and that's how we end this program today. We'd love to hear from you at goodmorning at ntd.com. So shoot us an email if you'd like, if you have any feedback for us. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.